Isaiah chapter 40. Keep your Bible open at Isaiah 40. We're going to refer to it. Isaiah 40, please, and we'll start to read from verse 25. There's a question poised to every one of us this morning. To whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number? He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint. And to them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. Father, will you now settle us in your presence? Will you now settle our hearts and help us to be responsive, receptive, to your holy word. Settle this congregation not only in our hearts and in your presence, but even in our seats. That there be no distractions, Lord, for what you would say to your people this morning. Challenge us. Encourage us. And help us, Lord, to know your will, to see your way to understand more the path that you would have us to go and to walk. We love you, Lord. We worship you. We ask you, Lord, to help me to glorify the Lord Jesus. For, Father, he alone is worthy. In his name, I ask it. Amen. In our reading, there are three things we must see but our God, when he asks us a question in verse 25, to whom then will you liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? And when we look at this, first of all, in verse 29, we see God's omnipotence. In verses 27 and 28, we see his omniscience. And then, of course, we see from 30 and 31, we see his omnipresence. For example, in verse 27, let's go in order. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest to Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, my judgment is passed over 
from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. We see him in his omniscience. He knows all, in other words. He's all-knowing. You need to take this for your life this morning. You need to take it for your walk with Christ. You need to take it for where you are today and keep it in the days that lie ahead, the years should the Lord spare and should the Lord tarry, that he is omniscient. And no matter what you're feeling, no matter how you're thinking, no matter what you go through, no matter what you face, he is the omniscient God. He knows all about you. He knows everything to do with you. He knows where you are and he sees where you are. He knows you inside and out. And so take it with you that he says, who will you liken me unto? There's no one knows you in the depths of your heart. In fact, we're told the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Even the very disciples around the table when the Lord was instituting what we call the Last Supper, breaking of bread. Even the disciples did not understand who would feel the Lord and let him down. Uh, they said, Lord, is it I, when he says one of you is a devil? Is it I? They didn't even understand their own heart. Their own heart was deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And we find in the scriptures that after this meeting with Christ in the upper room that there are those who would run and leave him in Gethsemane. There were those who would uh, take to the hillsides. Then there was Peter who would deny him thrice. And of course, there was Judas Iscariot, he whom the Lord had spoken of. But the disciples didn't even know their own hearts. And you know, God tests you, brother. God tests you, sister. And you're not tested when you're on the mountaintop. He tests you in the valley. Valleys of decision that we all find ourselves in. He tests our hearts. He tests the strength of our faith. And when, as it were, the rubber hits the road, and when it really needs to be called into action, he tests where we are with him. He knows where you are, but that you would know where you are with him. Of course, in his omniscience, not only does he know all about us, we see in verse 29, his omnipotence. He giveth power to the faint and to them that have no might. He increases strength. From verse 28, he runs into his omnipotence, all-powerful creator God. He neither... Uh, faints nor gets weary. And then he says in verse 29, he gives that power to the faint. The God who is, who is omnipotent means he's all-powerful at all times over all things. And in his sovereignty and his sovereign will, we have to understand that our lives are under his command, even when we rebel against him. His will will eventually be done. That's why the Lord said unto Saul, on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, uh, why kickest thou against the pricks? And it's hard for thee, why kickest thou against the pricks? And Paul, or Saul, who became Paul, says, Who art thou, Lord, a curious master, one who is in sovereign, complete control? Who are you? And he says, I am Jesus, the resurrected, ascended, glorified Christ, spoke to him on that road. And, and Paul realized then that he is sovereign. 
Sovereignty isn't that God is over all things, but the odd thing that you're going through, he isn't. No, but sovereignty is that he's all things at all times and charged and over all things at all times. And we see that as omnipotence is this, that he, he is all powerful. And the one who created the heavens and the one who created the earth is the same one this morning who says to you when you're weak and, and you're faint, he says, I don't faint. And when you're weary, I don't get weary. And he says, but you who are feeling, who are struggling, whether it's in faith or whether it's in physical body, whether it's in your mind or whatever you feel that you're fainting in and failing in, he says this in verse 29 to you, he giveth power to the faint. The one who fainteth not gives power to the faint and to them that have no might, he increases strength. You have no strength and you can't cope. You have no strength and you can't do. You have no strength, you can't get through. You don't know what way to turn. Well, he says, look, I'm the God of, of infinite strength and power for I have created all things, he says, and I will increase your strength. He says, I'm your strength. God forbid that any man would be your strength. God forbid that any pastor would be your strength. Christ is your strength. And he always will when you turn to him. Thirdly, we see his omnipresence. His omnipresence is in verse 30 and 31. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And one might say, well, how is his omnipresence here? Because omnipresence means everywhere at once at all times. Those who wait on the Lord, I'll look at it in a moment, but those who wait on him will find that whether you're waiting here or in your home or in your home or in your workplace, or whether you're waiting in whatever town or city or countryside dwelling you're in, he's there. He's the one that you turn to at all times, for he is your strength, and he's the one you can cry out to, whether you're in a, 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 a driving a car or, or you're in your van and work, or whether you're in the other side of the world and you're in a cave somewhere hiding. He is still there. David even says, where can I flee from your presence and from your spirit? He says, if I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost part of the earth, he says, behold, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell or in the grave, he says, even there you'll find me. There's nowhere that we and I can go in this life and even to the next that he is not already there for you. He's there to strengthen and he's there to comfort. He's there to be with you. He's there to be everything that you need. That's why Jesus is the I am that I am. It means that it is a term of eternity. He is the great I am who is everything at all times, whenever you need it and how you need it. According to his will, he says, I'm there. He tells us to look to him whether we're together or whether we're alone, whether we're in church setting or whether we are wherever we are. He says, look to me and I am there. Every single time you turn, he says, I'll be there for you. I'd love to be able to say that, but I can't. This day I cease to be your pastor. But he is the great shepherd. He's your pastor. He's your great shepherd of the sheep. 
Notice this. So we have him as omnipresent. And don't think that he's weaker for you than he is and he's stronger for someone else. His omnipotence doesn't change. His omniscience doesn't change. His omnipresence doesn't change. He is the immutable God who changes not. No Puritan once said that God's circumference, like you draw a circumference around an object, he says God's circumference is nowhere because he is the great eternal spirit. His circumference is nowhere, he says, but his center is everywhere. His center is everywhere. You know, the Lord has said to us in Titus 1 and 2 through the pen of the apostle that we have the hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. That even when we were in our sins, we realized that he loved us. We did not know it. We maybe couldn't comprehend it, couldn't understand it. We never received it. But his love was always for you. Christian, his love was always upon you. And the day that you and I got saved, we realized his love for us. And that love has just washed over us. And the, the more that you, you serve him, the sweeter he grows. No, of course, says, the more that I love him, more love he bestows. Each day is like heaven. My heart overflows. The longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. Let Christ be your everything. If you hear anything this morning, let Christ be your all. He is God who not does not lie, but he cannot lie. And he's placed a promise not only a promise, but many promises in his word for you. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. Why? For he is faithful that promised. We speak of people with a promise in their life. We see someone growing up, a young boy and a young girl, and there are many in here, and the church is coming down with children here, and it's wonderful. It, rejoices my heart every time I've seen them coming through the doors. Growing up in the ways of the Lord, and these children have all promises for them in God. Every single one of them, God has promised something for them, many promises for them. But we look in the natural, and we see a promise, maybe they're good at singing, or maybe they're, they're good at sports, or whatever they are, and, and that promise must be developed. But they have to be uh, able to be, or be willing to, I should say, to be able to, to develop that promise by the parents, as it were, we have to be able to take them to where they must be to be able to develop them further. And every one of you as children of God has a promise, many promises. And what God does as our loving Heavenly Father is He does things that maybe we don't even like. You know, maybe you're, you, you've went to piano lessons and you just did not like them. Maybe you've been brought to sports and you couldn't see the promise, but your parents could, but they kept at it because they believed in the promise that was in you. And God has left many promises. This omnipotent and omniscient, omnipresent God says, I, I have promises for these wee ones, but he has it for you. Do you know a promise, uh, if you look it up just in a simple Chambers Dictionary, it's described like this. A promise is a ground for hope of future excellence. 
a ground for hope for future excellence. And you see the ground for hope and the promise of what they're showing and proving in their lives. And so you try to bring it out and it's, it's a ground for hope. It's a promise in them for future excellence. And you want to develop that, whether that be in, in, the, in the, the world of, of commerce and business for, for their life and their job or whatever it may be in the natural. But spiritually, God sees the same in you all, brothers and sisters. God sees the same. He has given you so many. Now, when we talk about promises, and I want to, actually, that's what I'm calling this message this morning. God's promises are ground for hope of future excellence. And God's promises are given to you and given to me for a ground for hope of future excellence, not for what we can achieve for ourselves, but what we can achieve through him and for him, for his glory, for his kingdom. When I look down, I see a room full of promise. A room full of people, full of promise. Full of promise if you stick to the word. And listen, brothers and sisters, we hear all the time about promises. And it's like some sort of airy-fairy thing, the promises, the promises. And, but the real promises in God's word, you may be challenged to release these promises. And what do I mean? It's like bringing them to that piano lesson that they never wanted to go to until they got that promise that was in them out. God will challenge you until you have yourself stripped bare, as it were, before him. We think of promises, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And I love that. That's fantastic. Back to front is thee forsake nor thee leave, never will I. It's a wonderful promise. We think of a promise, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. That's fantastic. We think of all of these things, but what about the challenge of the promise? Three quick things I want to look at this morning as we look at these promises of God. First of all, if you turn to James chapter 4, James chapter 4, please. You either turn or you can just listen. I'm going to read a few verses out. Verse 8 to 10. First of all, there's the hindrance of the promise in the Christian's life. And you may say to me now, Pastor, why would you want to tell me the hindrance of the promise? Because you have so much potential. You have so much potential. And I've seen over the eight plus years that I've been here, people grow. I've seen people grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I've seen them grow in the things of the Spirit. I've seen them grow and do well, and I've seen them advance, as it were, in the kingdom. And others maybe not as much. It's not a condemnation. It's just uh, an observation. Maybe others not as much. But everyone has something in them that you can apply to the kingdom of God, that you can apply for His glory. But listen, all of us, this is to all of us, whether we've advanced much or little or not at all. Some are on the road and traveling on with God. Some are in the road and putting obstacles up against God's work. But nevertheless, we need to look at what God has done, is doing, and will continue to do with you. That the promise of for, that you have is not in the man in the pulpit here. This man, I'm speaking of myself, but the promise is in Christ. All the promises of God in him are yea and are amen. 
And you can carry these and you can use these for, you can say, well, Lord, this is the promise and how do we further the work of God? First of all, don't hinder the promise of God. James 4, verse 8, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. That's a lovely promise. If you draw to him, he'll draw nigh unto you. Please, a lovely promise, but that's not all of it. That's not the condition of it. Please listen, it's not the condition. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Oh, now here, hold on. We don't like this promise too much already. And purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Mark down that chapter, read it when you go home, and then contrast, this is written, because before, in the earlier part of the chapter, it's about the devil and his wiles and the devil and his attacking, and you're saying, I have no promise. You're saying that the devil's having a field day. Listen, brothers and sisters, I've told you over and over again, and I trust you'll hear it and take it with you, for, as you know, this is my last day. The devil can only do to you what you allow him to do. You are redeemed with the blood of Christ. And it's how we give him the open door. He's like an encyclopedia or vacuum cleaner salesman. You see him put his foot in the door. And Paul says, never give place to the devil. Don't even give him a foothold. And how do we do that? We keep ourselves right before God. We walk right before God. Draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. But here's the thing I've noticed in my life. The closer I get to God and the more aware I am of his spirit, the more I see who I am in my corruption. The more I see my weaknesses and the more I see my frailties and the more I see my inabilities, because he is holy, the more I see my failures and the more I see that, uh, that I, I am in total need of him. Some people say, oh, we get so close to God and, you know, it was just such a wonderful time. And, and that may be so. But really, the closer you get to God, you may feel like Isaiah, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And the Lord says, if you draw close to me, I'll draw close to you, but you may see something you don't like if you're really, truly in my presence. Now, I'm not saying that we can't go into God's presence, for he's made the way possible, and we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and God is not going to cast us out, but this is what I am saying. God says to you and I, you need to do something. You need to go, and excuse the term, to that piano lesson you never wanted to go to, But spiritually speaking, he's saying, you need to be able to go through things that this promise will be unleashed and that this promise will be released onto you. Notice what he says. Draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. When the devil's attacking, what are we going to do? When the devil's at us, what are we going to do? Simple, draw nigh unto God. We're told to resist the devil and he will flee from you. He didn't say fight the devil. He didn't say cast out the devil even. It doesn't say that. You see, he's already defeated. And a lot of Christians run around casting out devils where they're not needed, cast it out. Just resist him. Don't listen to him. 
And he will flee. You know why? Because he sees the anointing on you. He sees the promise in you. And he says, if this promise is released here in her, in him, he says, then I'm in trouble. If this promise of ministry is released, then there's going to be a a terrible fate for me. And he knows he's a terrible fate. I'm speaking of his work in his kingdom in the unsaved of this world. And notice what he says here. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts. Be single-minded for Christ. In other words, he's saying, be afflicted and mourn. Turn with me to Matthew 5, if you will. I just want to, I want to show you something that's really important for the church today and for what's happening in our nation today and the world. Why should the church be in 2016? How should we be as individuals, as an assembly? How should you together here be? Matthew 5. And we're told, and seeing the multitudes, first one, he went, the Lord Jesus, up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I have done a, a teaching some years ago on this called the ethics of the kingdom. And this is the ethics of the kingdom. In other words, it's the morals of the believer, the morals of those who are kingdom people. The saints of God, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, notice, the idea is blessed are the poor spirited. Poor in spirit isn't you have to walk around whipping yourself all the time, self-flagellation and being down in yourself. That's not poor spirited. Or that's poor spirit, not poor in spirit. The idea of poor in spirit is blessed are those who know that they can do nothing absolutely nothing without divine assistance. And sometimes we as Christians, we say, Lord, I can do nothing without you. We can go nowhere without you. We can achieve nothing without you. And that's true. But do you know whenever we realize, I mean fully, totally and completely realize that we can do nothing without him, I mean absolutely nothing without him, when we are at our lowest ebb, when we are at our weakest point, when we have abandoned all things of hope and help, save looking to Christ alone. That's the idea of this. It's the poor in spirit isn't that uh, the poor in spirit isn't the poor spirited. You know, it's sometimes when I when I've come here on a on a, on the on Sunday morning or Sunday night or while it's been Bible study. And many times, as you know, that I've preached in this pulpit, I, I have, I tried to work it out the other day as I sat, going through a lot of things in my study. And I have preached the usual between Bible studies and missions and stuff 1,500 times. And when I'm going through this, I'm seeing things that even I'd forgotten about that the Lord had given to me. And even things that have come to pass that the Lord had given to me. And then I thought of times when I was at my weakest and lowest ebb. Think of times at the loss of my loved ones when I had to come in here the week after they died. And not I had to, I did, because I needed to be back in the work of God. Didn't want the devil to hold me back. 
And I can also tell you, when I went home, I pulled the blinds and didn't want to speak. Weakest and lowest day, but yet, when I remember back, they were some of the best meetings we had. God spoke the most profound at some of those meetings. As I'm going through these, and I've been writing these things down, I'm seeing them, and saying, Lord, look what you've done, but I couldn't see it. I was so overwhelmed by my grief and my mourning. But all the time he was working, all the time he was blessing, all the time he was there in his omnipresence, and he was omniscient in how I was, and I thought he was nowhere near me. I told you, I've stood down at the river, gazing into the water, thinking, I can't cope anymore. What's this going to be like if I continue on? Losing four of your loved ones in a short period of time was hard. But those were the times that he moved, that I was aware, yet he was always the same. It's me. It's you. We can't grasp hold of what he's doing in the moment because of our mindset, because of our heart, because of our hardness, because of our bitterness, because of whatever it may be. And the things that's holding us back, because of our our thoughts and what the day holds or whatever. And the meeting, God's moving. And, and some of us are coming in and we're clocking hard because that's what we do on a Sunday and we clock as it were back out again. And, and listen, we're, as much as we're delighted and we're glad to see you, it's not about clocking cards. It's about receiving the word of God in the heart. And I remember those times were the times when I was poor in spirit. I was coming and I remember preaching and I'm sure you all thought, boy, he's getting on with that rightly and he's, he's over that very quickly for that next Sunday I was back in the pulpit. But that, it's not to say, look at me, it was I had to come back because it's where I live. This word is my life. Even then, I told you the other week, I do nothing, I have no, except for walking the dog. And even then I must pray when I'm out in the fields. Christ is my life. And it's at your weakest moments that you realize, Lord, when you're looking back, standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus. It's there at your weakest point and at your weakest place that you're going to realize that, Lord, you were there all the time. It was my feelings. It was my mourning. It was my hurt. Or, or it was something that annoyed me or something that upset me or, or some bitterness that I'd allowed to come into my life or whatever it is that's come into our lives. God is always the same in his omniscience as he knows you, as his omnipotence. And he wants to bless you with his power. And of course, with his omnipresence, he's with you all the time. And he says to Isaiah, who are you going to liken me to? Brother, sister, come on. Wherever we are today, this is, a, this is a hard day for you. This is a hard day for me. Maybe it's harder for some than others. I don't know. Maybe it's not a hard day. Maybe some people put the flags out when I go. I don't know. But listen, blow the trumpets and the shofars in Israel. You know what sort of stuff? No, he's gone. Lee how the witch is dead type of thing. You know, but... Nevertheless, that doesn't faze me. I know who he is. 
And he says to me, son, to whom would you liken me? And I said, there's no one like you, Lord. There's none like you, Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice what he says. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I'm not going to go down through all of these. I just want to show you this. Because this is important. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I'm just only after speaking about a time of mourning. And many of you, have, from recent two years from I've came here, I have conducted the funeral service of many, many people, and not only here, but down the Cloney area, the village. And I have been with you through much mourning. I mean, it's been really difficult for you. Still is. And I have read this, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Isn't that lovely? There's a promise, but that's not the real promise of it. Yes, he will comfort those who turn to him in their mourning. That's okay, but the idea of this is not that we read it whenever we mourn for a loss of a loved one. The idea of this is a different idea altogether when Christ is saying it because it is the ethics of the kingdom. This is kingdom principle. And the kingdom principle of it is this. Blessed are they that mourn. Listen, and it means mourning for the sin that's all around them. Of course, sin brings forth death. Blessed are they that mourn because there are those who are lost and in their sin and, and going to a devil's hell. Blessed are they that mourn for the, the sin and the apostasy that comes into the church. How many of us actually know we get on our knees before God and mourn like we have lost our loved ones. Mourn for the souls of men. Mourn for the souls of women. Mourn for the state of our nation. Mourn for the sin that's around us. How many of us will mourn and get on our faces and cry unto God and say, Lord, we're mourning. I'm not saying in demonstration because it's just demonstration sake. I mean from the heart that we're mourning and we're crying and we're weeping before God because we're seeing our nation going to hell in a handcart. We're seeing our loved ones and we're seeing people who are all around us and the people of our, our neighborhood and our workmates. And we're, we're, we're ashamed to say that Jesus saves because we're afraid of them turning us away or the boss kicking us out. Jesus is saying this. This is the actual context that he says this in. Blessed are I that mourn for what is going on around you. Mourn for the sin that's in our towns. Mourn for the young women going out there and committing, having to go through an abortions. Young babies being slaughtered and murdered in the womb. Blessed are they that mourn over young men and young women who are drinking themselves to death week in, week out, and the church thinks it's okay to go and join them. It's time to mourn for these things. Time to cry over this with heartfelt prayers on the God. 
me, the church has stopped their mourning and have done too much dancing. Now listen, I believe in the church dancing. The church needs to mourn. Mourn the loss. That we once had of this move of the Spirit. Mourn the loss of holiness. Separation from the world. Consecrated unto Christ. And Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn. The word blessed, by the way, is the word makarios. I have to watch the clock because we're, near, we're, we're, we're just almost out of time. Blessedness means makarios and it means, oh, the super abundance of the blessing of the man and woman who can see what it is and weep over it. That's what Christ is saying. You want to know real blessing? You want to know real blessing? Get into the place of prayer and start crying for the souls of the damned. Ask Christ to give us vision of our loved ones who are going to hell, who are going to be lost for all eternity, who will end up in a lake of fire. Ask God to give us a a vision of our nation and of our beloved Ulster, our province, of of all of Ireland, and, and say, Lord, would you please pour out the blessing? Would you send your Holy Ghost fire? Will you raise up men and raise up women who will not fade nor faint until they see this island and these islands want to give for Christ? He says, weep over it and mourn. Stop dancing and start mourning. Stop joining them in it. Start crying over it. Blessed are they that mourn. Oh, the blessedness of a man and a woman who can see how blessed they are in Christ, forgiven of their sin, washed in his blood, sealed by his spirit. How blessed are we this morning? Yes, of course we can dance. Of course we can praise. I love to dance and praise. No one as much as me. In fact, tonight I've thought of taking off my shoes and up and down my sock soles. I have not. I'm only joking now. It's time to mourn. Time to mourn the state. The state of things. Time to mourn the state of our, of the church worldwide I'm speaking of. Time to mourn for the things, you know, equal marriage as such as it is, they call it. Uh, time to, to, to mourn over the, over, the, over the lifestyles of men and women, over the, the gay agenda that's pressing the liberal left, is pressing it into our faces week in, week out. It's time to mourn over it. It's time to mourn over injustice that's in our nation. It's time to mourn. I'll tell you, when my people start to mourn, this is what he says, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. God's promises in you. And the comfort, the word comforted, by the way, is a, a word, parakaleo. Honestly, you know, I, I, when I look at this, I think of parakaleo, we think of the paraclete, who is the Holy Spirit. But here it is, it gives the idea to come alongside or to shout or to beseech someone. I'll give you an example. The exact same word is used when Jesus goes up onto the beach after coming through the storm and the, uh, the, the, the demonic man comes down and the demons are shouting out, Jesus, Son of the Most High, we beseech you. That's the idea. He came up with these demons in him right to Christ. It's the same word. 
And those that are mourning and see what is happening, it is that they come along and they're praying unto God and they're crying. And God says, oh, they're so blessed. They can see the holiness of God in the midst of it. They can see righteousness and truth when others are blind, when others can't understand it, whenever others are dead to me, says they're alive unto me. For why? For you'll see through the eyes of God. When you're mourning for it, you're seeing through the eyes of the Spirit. And that's why we mourn, for if we hadn't the Spirit, we'd be with them. If we hadn't the Spirit, we'd be partaking. If we hadn't the Spirit, we'd be like them. He says, oh, how blessed are my people that they see the errors of these people's ways. Now you'll be comforted. He comes down and he says, little flock, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, son. Don't be afraid, daughter, for I have a great promise for you. I have great precious promises for you. We can hinder I'll tell you what the points are because it's time to go. The hindrance there's the understanding the one who promised then there's the source of the promise and receiving the promise. And Isaiah Isaiah 40 at the end of this chapter which we have read I finish with this you know we can say well why do we not get through all those points because God wanted it to go a different way you need to leave room for the spirit when there's a young man contacted me and he says I was down in the tent in Moigashal I heard you preaching he says how is it you leave your notes like that and walk away I says, well, study, pray, seek God's face, and when the Spirit's on you, leave it and let him direct you. Listen to what he says in chapter 40, verse 30, 31. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Notice, even those who think they're strong will faint. And young men shall utterly fall, but... There's a big door that swings in small hinges, but the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. A big door swinging on a small hinge. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the idea for waiting isn't well, Lord, I'm going to sit in my holy huddle or I'm going to sit in my poor-spirited situation and it isn't I'm going to sit here until you come like I'm waiting on a bus. I'm going to mope and I'm going to complain about it. No. The idea here is to be interwoven, intertwined with the Lord in the reading of his word. And as he starts to develop the word in you, the promises of God are flowing through you. And as the word is within you, you start to grow strong. It's like a, an eagle who is molting and the eagle goes onto the ground. They're soaring to all heights Then suddenly they find themselves in the ground and they have to molt to get new feathers. And here's the thing. If the eagle doesn't start flapping his wings at the right time to strengthen himself with his new feathers, he never takes off again. He's a danger of death for he can't feed himself. And maybe you're at the place where you're so poor-spirited you realize you can do nothing without him. 
and you're at the place where you're like that eagle on the ground. You've fainted, as it were, and you're saying, Lord, I'm waiting on you. I'm reading your word. I'm trusting in your promises. I know you're going to develop this in me. And you start to flap your wings a little, start to give yourself a little bit of a shake and a little bit of a move on and start to get into your meeting and start to get together, start to fellowship, but start reading and praying and seeking his face and you'll find your new fellers will start to grow from the molting. And the more you start to flap your arms, your fellers come into use. And the more they come into use, the stronger your muscles become again till suddenly they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. That's the idea of it. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Why? Because he is your strength. So he says, to whom will you liken me? Brother, sister, you need to answer that. I've answered it, Lord, there's no one like you. There's none like the Lord. God bless us.